0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey, your
1: journey, your your journey, journey, your journey starts here.
2: Here. Good evening, and welcome to the. Pratt Free Library's African-American Department, and to the Writers' Live series. So, without further ado, I would like to introduce Linda G. Morris, who was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. She attended Baltimore City Public Schools, including Cherry Hill Elementary School, Garrison Junior High School, and Edmondson High School. Linda graduated from Towson State University in 1969 with a B.S. in Sociology after working as a baltimore city social work assistant linda left baltimore to work for the federal government in the field of equal employment opportunity she started out in richmond virginia and spent most of her federal career in the washington dc area during her federal tenure she worked at the equal employment opportunity commission the patent and trademark office and she retired as the EEO Complaints Branch Manager for the National Institutes of Health in 2003. Linda began freelance writing in the mid-1970s, having her work appear in Essence and Baltimore Magazine. Linda now resides in Germantown, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and she's here this evening to discuss her work, Cherry Hill. Please join me in welcoming Linda Morris to Pratt Library. Thank you so much. Good
1: evening, everyone. I just want to thank Vivian for that lovely introduction that I wrote. And I want to thank all of you for being here. And I want to thank Pratt, the Pratt Library, the Enoch Pratt Library, for having me this evening and welcoming a discussion of our book, Cherry Hill. And I call it our book because this, even though my name is on the book, it's the, a collaboration of about 60 first-generation Cherry Hill children And um, we thank goodness for the internet, because we were able to find people from Cherry Hill. I put out a post on Facebook back in November of 2015, saying that I was interested in writing something on Cherry Hill, because Cherry Hill, if you've ever lived in Cherry Hill, Cherry Hill stays with you. It's always in your heart, whether you live there physically or not. So I wanted to, and in, in about 2015, I think, is when we had the images of Baltimore going all over the country with the Freddie Gray matter, and Baltimore just being seen in such a negative light. That bothered me. And I said, well, I, have to, I thought I had to do something to help the city. I haven't always loved it, but the older you get, you know, your memories fade. And, um, and I do love Baltimore. I found out I love Baltimore more than I thought. So I'm happy to be here this evening to tell you about how we came to write the book and to share a little bit about the book. I want to um, introduce to you my brother, John Morris who collaborated, he wrote the last chapter of the book, which is a demographic analysis of Cherry Hill. And if you're a person who doesn't want to read the touchy-feely first 15 chapters or so, you can jump right to the last chapter and pretty much get a feel for Cherry Hill and what happened over the course of the first 20, 25 years. And next to John is Sidney Rawls-Ellis. Sydney is the foot soldier of the book. She traveled far and wide across Baltimore city, city telling people I was writing the book and she would get people to contact me so that they could have their memories included in the book. So we are all going to discuss with you tonight our efforts in um, our book, Cherry Hill. Now, I do want to say that because in writing this book um, it's, it's a collection of memories, I felt that it wouldn't be right for me to profit from this book, so what we are going to do is to create some type of mechanism to create a fund for the schools in Cherry Hill so that they can use the proceeds from the book and we're, also, we're now trying to push the book to a movie because we know books don't make a lot of money, but movies do. So, we want to try to get the book to um, become a movie so that we can fund a pot of money for the principals, the three principals at the schools to use because they're closest to the children and they know the children's needs. And I um, will set it up so that they can use it for experiential learning. Um, so that the children can go on field trips that possibly the city would not fund, but we want (coughs) them to have a pot of money outside of the regular budget so that the children in Cherry Hill can get uh, supplemental learning opportunities. So let me start by reading the first paragraph or so for you so that I can set the mood for Cherry Hill. Now, the first chapter is called Nimby, not in my backyard, because nobody wanted this community. And I'll tell you about that after I read it. Before Opie lived in Mayberry, Beaver and Wally in Mayfield, and Betty, Bud, and Kathy in Springfield, you know those three shows. If you're my age, you should remember Betty, Bud, and Kathy from what show? Father Knows Best. Nobody remembers Father Knows Best? Oh, maybe you're not as old as I am then, okay. But anyway, and Beaver and Wally, of course, from Leave It to Beaver, and Opie from The Andy Griffith Show, there were thousands of little black children experiencing the same quality of life in Cherry Hill, a post-World War II planned suburban community containing a public housing project on a southeastern peninsula of Baltimore City. These children had a sense of being loved, being free, being safe, and above all, having the space they needed to stretch out and enjoy small town living. They could play all day with their friends, skate and ride their bikes all over town, and chase the ice cream man's truck, with the admonishment to be home by the time the streetlights came on. I should know, I was one of these children and I have rallied 60 or so of my Cherry Hill contemporaries to share what life was like for us in what we know to be a special place and time. Our families moved to Cherry Hill because it was a chance to leave the rundown secondhand housing of Baltimore's inner city and live in brand new homes created just for us. Cherry Hill separated from the rest of Baltimore by train tracks to the north, the middle branch of the Patapsco River to the east and the Hanover Street Bridge to the south offered isolation and freedom from the rigors of living in tight and overpopulated city street grids. It also offered the opportunity to shape and mold a lifestyle on par with other planned communities of the time, and that included Homeland, Guilford, and Roland Park. We were living the same quality of life. Some families were recruited because they had someone working in the defense industry that was important to the World War II war effort, Others were in need of affordable housing in a very segregated Baltimore city that stifled their mobility with housing covenants that kept them in the deteriorating structures of the inner city. Still, by the time the community was actually built and families began moving in, others had veterans returning from a war in which they were good enough to fight, but not good enough to choose any neighborhood in Baltimore to find a decent place to call home. What a wondrous place Cherry Hill was, planned with everything the community needed to support self-sufficiency, schools, churches, a community center, a shopping center, a public swimming pool, and neighborhood playgrounds and parks. We had our own clinic, staffed by doctors who lived in the community. We even had our own bus number, 37. The only place the 37 went was to Cherry Hill. So even if you couldn't read, you knew that number and what it meant. The bus leaving Cherry Hill was the 28th. The 28 and the 37 ran parallel routes coming back toward Cherry Hill, but that route separated when you got to Westport, a white community adjoining Cherry Hill. The number 37 signaled that the bus was full of black people going to a black neighborhood. We didn't object because we just went about the business of living and shaping life in Cherry Hill. Okay. Now, let me tell you why Cherry Hill is where it is. In the, uh, during the war, right before the war, after the late 30s, Baltimore City experienced a lot of migration. You had blacks migrating up from the south. You had people coming here because Baltimore was a boom town. Baltimore had a manufacturing um, industry. Baltimore had jobs. The war effort was on, and people came here to work uh, in the defense industry. So Baltimore had a housing crisis for everyone. Um, You had people coming from Eastern Europe, and they needed places to live, but generally their families would take them in, and they they would find housing elsewhere. They didn't really have to deal with the covenants that black people did. So when... Uh, Mayor Howard Jackson, let me start the um, slide presentation for you so you can have something to look at other than me. Now that's me. That's okay, John, I just have to hit okay. it here. Oh, you wanted to see. I'm trying to get out the way. Oh, that's Mayor Howard Jackson. So in the late 30s, people like Lily, Mrs. Lily Carroll, who was the head of the Urban League, Mrs. Lily Carroll is the mother of Mrs. Juanita Jackson Mitchell, who was married to um, Clarence Mitchell, who's referred to as the 101st Senator. Anyway, she was the, so Mrs. Lily Carol Jackson was the head of the Urban League. Thurgood Marshall was the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I don't think it was called that, but he was on that legal team. Um, And other black black elite people, came to the mayor and said, you must do something about this housing crisis. And particularly after Franklin Roosevelt created New Deal housing programs, um, the, they encouraged him to take advantage of those programs, which he did he took out, I believe it was a $16,000 loan, $16 million loan, to build eight housing projects. And two of the eight were supposed to be war housing. Um, one development, which is Armstead Gardens, was supposed to be for white families only because there, there was a lot of resistance to putting this type of housing in neighborhoods that had homeowners. But once they found out that whites were going into Armstead Gardens, they didn't offer too much resistance. And the second project was Cherry Hill for black families, because at the time, as you know, we were were segregated. This was Jim Crow. So um, the uh, Armstead Gardens was easily built. It went up, I think it opened in 1941, 43 maybe. But Cherry Hill was another issue. Now that's Mayor McKeldin, Theodore McKeldin. He became mayor after Mayor Howard Jackson. He's in the center surrounded by school children. So Mayor McKeldin came into existence. Uh, Mayor Jackson had already obtained the loans for these housing projects. And Mayor McKeldin was the one who actually had to do the legwork to find the site and get this thing built. He experienced a lot of opposition from neighborhoods. Wherever he tried, he talked about putting Cherry Hill, or it wasn't called Cherry Hill, but wherever he talked about putting this housing development for war workers, for black war workers, he experienced a lot of conflict. Finally, the federal government stepped in told the city that you need to get off the pot with this money um, and give us a site, or I guess they were going to lose the money. So the government stepped in. Um, finally, the, the problem was that the city council did not want to to bite the bullet, and neither did the mayor, although he did admit that people need decent housing, and he, he was a very good friend to Cherry Hill but it was a lot of pressure on him um, to place this community. So the reason Cherry Hill was selected was because, one, by 1943, private investors were already building private homes. The the federal FHA was already um, involved, and they were building homes for the returning veterans and whoever else could afford to buy them. And so, since the private homes were already being built, Mayor McKeldin thought that it would just be easier to put the public housing project there. Now, the problem was that the land where Cherry Hill sits was deemed as unsuitable for human habitation. It was swamp land. I mean, it was heavily wooded. It was swamp land. It had uh, Potter's Field, and two schools were eventually built on that, that cemetery. Um, and it also had the incinerator and the dump there. So the Urban League didn't want to put there. Uh, the, the the black, there was a big fight over whether the city would be able to put it there. And finally, what, what turned the tide was the fact that most people who were in opposition to it going in, most black people who were in opposition, um, knew that this was quite a coup because Cherry Hill is the first instance of houses being built for African Americans in Baltimore City being built on vacant land. That was one of the biggest arguments. They just wanted to do urban renewal um, to build these projects, tear down existing housing but I guess they didn't feel that black people deserved um, to have anything created. Now, the point, I I don't think that Cherry Hill started out to be a planned community, but thank God for segregation. (laughs) Because, Because we were segregated, they had to build a total infrastructure to keep us in Cherry Hill. If you've ever been to Cherry Hill, you know there are only two ways in you can go in from Waterview Road making the right turn onto Cherry Hill Road or you can come in from Poti Street so that was so the community was basically contained so we got what we needed and the city got what it needed so we were okay with that now this is mayor Thomas Dalessandro Jr. I think I misspelled his name I think it's only but anyway, he is, many of you may know, is the father of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. And he was a three-term mayor of Baltimore City. And he built the, the second and third extension to, I guess it's the first and second extensions of Cherry Hill in the mid-1950s. So we're talking about The beginning of Cherry Hill being a round of housing going up there in 1943, it was dedicated, the projects in Cherry Hill Homes, and I guess the whole community was dedicated in 1946, February of 1946. The first people moved into the projects in December of 1945. The homeowners moved in in early 1944. So um, the homeowners that were on the in the bottom as we call it but anyway so three mayors are essentially credited with the development of cherry hill now that's that bus that notorious number 37 so you could get on anybody could ride it but i think they just wanted everybody to know this bus is going to cherry hill now that is the construction being done along Spellman Road? Spellman Road um, was one of the first streets built in um, the first development it 's down the street at the top of the hill. The community center went at the top of the hill, but uh, those are houses and one thing we I found out in researching the book was that not for this housing, but for some other housing I'm going to show you, there was a black architect, Hilliard Robinson. He is the first um, chair, I believe he's the first chair of the architecture school at Howard (coughs) University. But anyway, he was the architect on the first extension that was built in houses that we lived in, John. The first extension built around 19, it began in 52, the building, and opened, I think it opened in 52. We moved in in 53. That's our street, that's Carver Road, and we lived on the far end by the trees next to the end um, house. And um, so these were designed. Now, Robinson had been in World War I, he had traveled through Europe. He I think he graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, and he went on to do graduate work at Columbia University. And he got a fellowship from Columbia, and he used that to travel through Europe and to take some of their um, designs, especially space economy, um, housing economy, and he put it in some of his ideas into these houses. We had, uh, there was a pantry, we called it a pantry, but a, a space for a washer and dryer, um, closet space, and, and the house we lived in was just a two-bedroom house. Most of the houses in Cherry Hill are two-bedroom. Um, there are some three in the privately owned homes, and some of these apartments, um, some of these on the end, I think, were a little larger. Now, this is our shopping center being built. And it looks like, when I looked at that, it looked like Joan Crawford was playing at the movie. But this was a place where we went on the weekends. um, You could find every child in Cherry Hill in the Hill Theater watching Western Double Features or whatever was playing. And you had to be, they had a line. You had to be under that line to pay the child's fee. And if you were over that line, you had to pay an adult fee. And I was always tall, and I was always over that line, probably from the time I was nine. And my mother went up and fussed with the Hill Theater management about finding, they needed to find another way to judge the age. Now, this is Ascension Street. These are some of the private homes. And those two little girls are uh, Gwen and Siglinda Lindsay. Well, Burns Lindsay mm mm-hmm. Burns. They are, they have a, I have a family picture later on. You'll see the rest of their family. I think it was about what eight of them, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Right. And these houses, like I said, are two and three bedroom houses. But people were so glad to have bought their first home. Uh, you had people that just um, designed their own living spaces in these houses. Now, I believe that's Swale Avenue. I'm not sure, but Swale Avenue, the significance of Swale Avenue is one of our doctors was located on Swale Avenue. And um, you would go to him. If you ever watched Doc Martin on PBS, this doctor's office was like that. You just go in, you'd sit, but he never had a receptionist. You just showed up, you stood in line till he opened up. And you went in as it was your turn. I never saw a fight, anybody trying to jump in front of anybody. Uh, so, we, like I said, we had our own doctors. Now, you'll see those smokestacks behind these apartments. I believe they're on Seagull Avenue. And those smokestacks were always a bone of contention in Cherry Hill. We were <clears throat> always fighting to get rid of that incinerator. And Mrs. Uh, Murphy, the Murphy family, um, who I'll have a picture of later on, was very active in Cherry Hill, and um, they fought for the quality of life in Cherry Hill. Now these are some other architectural delights in Cherry Hill. These are called Venti Lighthouses, and the way I found that out, Professor John Brayen of Loyola College had done a 30-page history of Cherry Hill back in 2003. He had his students, he was an architecture, I think an architectural historian, I believe. And He had his students go out and take transcripts from the early Cherry Hill homeowners, and so I found that terminology in his book. And he was kind enough, I contacted him while I was writing the book, and he was kind enough to give me the transcripts, the original transcripts from his 30-page um, history. And in his history, he had said, that it was never meant to be considered a complete history of Cherry Hill and that he hoped that Cherry Hill (laughs) residents would write their own history or something like that. So he was very pleased when um, I told him I was writing the book and I sent him a copy and he sent me some very nice comments and he even asked for a second copy because he wanted to share one with someone. So I was pleased that he was pleased. Now, that is Booker Drive, or Booker T. Drive. The streets in Cherry Hill were named for people you would know from black history. We lived on Carver Road. You had Bethune Road, for Ms., named for Ms. Mary McLeod Bethune. Of course, Carver Road was named for George, Dr. George Washington Carver. This is Booker T. Drive, but we called it Booker Drive. And um, these are private homes. These are rental apartments along Shellbanks Road, I believe it is, as you come into Cherry Hill. They sit on a hill. So you can see there's varied architecture. It wasn't it, Cherry Hill was not cheaply done. It was done with a plan. Um, I have a chapter in the book on the Cherry Hill plan. And um, the reason I know that it was a planned community is that the Baltimore City Department of Planning uh, was in... A battle with a civic a few civic organizations, and there was the civic organizations were saying that uh, that Cherry Hill was going to be a mess because everybody was involved. You had the people who were already there building, and that it was just going to be a mess. But uh, John Steele, I believe his name was, who was the city planner, said that that was not true because the city had already been working with the federal government to create the Cherry Hill plan because it needed, um, they had to create all the infrastructure necessary for the community to survive. Now that's more architecture, that's, um, what does that say? Claiborne. 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 it Cla- Cla- Court. Cla- 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 Is it Court. Cl- uh, Cla- Court. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And those, I was just showing the porches there and the trees, Cherry Hill had beautiful beautiful trees, and open space when we were children. I believe they just they overdeveloped it. Um, this is the community center. And that was the seat of social life. In the, community, in the early 1950s, not everybody had TV sets. The community center had a TV room. And the most popular show, I know this according to Mrs. Madeline Murphy, she said in her transcript, the most popular show was, I believe, Thursday nights when the Lone Ranger came on. Everybody would be in the TV room watching that. But the community center planned all sorts of social events so that we were never busy, we were never idle. And everybody, homeowners and uh, persons living in public housing, everybody was one. That's the Methodist church, I think, the population back in 1971 united methodist church that has since been built up but you can see that's a big congregation of children we had lots of children and lots of playmates in cherry hill didn't we sydney yeah. now that's dr Renault lixton he's one of the three doctors and one dentist in cherry hill we had dr lixton we had dr jerry luck who was out of um, Gainesville, Virginia, but he settled in Cherry Hill with his wife coming out of medical school um, in Meharry. And we had Dr. John Braxton, who didn't live in the community, but he serviced the community up until his death very recently. Um, And we also had one dentist, Dr. Edward McDaniels. We hated him, (laughs) but he serviced the community well. What, he would, what would happen is that, well, in 1952, I think it was, Baltimore got fluoridated water. Uh, Mayor D'Alessandro, Baltimore was one of the first cities to have fluoridated water. Baltimore was a very progressive city under its leadership. And they got um, the fluoridated water, and the city began building dental suites in the schools. Now, Cherry Hill had excellent schools. We had four new schools. At first, we just had the one. 159, which was built in 1946, but then it was overcrowded before it was built. Then they built 160. I'm sorry, 160, yeah, 160, isn't that right? 160, okay. And then 163, and then 164. Now Cherry Hill has two schools. They've consolidated the grades, but they're 21st century schools. But I think that they will be, they will serve Cherry Hill quite well. But anyway, then we had the junior high school. We never had a high school. So if you, if you, you, conceivably, you could stay in Cherry Hill until you graduated middle school and never had to leave Cherry Hill for anything. Now, that's my family, and that arrow is pointing to me.
2: <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, John. I didn't find an arrow. That's John on my mother's lap. Now, my father was probably a GS1 clerk at Social Security, and his job was to run the tapes from the computers. If you'll remember back in the, well, you might not remember, but computers were virtual rooms back in those days. And his job was to run the tapes to the various organizations that needed them so that people could get their um, Social Security checks. Now, in the very beginning, when this housing was built, it was thought that government workers were considered defense workers. But in the early 50s, it was after we moved in in 53, it was decided that government workers were not entitled to this housing. So um, what we had to move once our income got to a certain limit. But that was for everyone. Everybody had to move. But it's just that um, our in, we got to that limit in 58, I believe it was, and we moved in 59. And one good thing is that most of the mothers in Cherry Hill were homemakers. They didn't have to work. The husbands had really good jobs, so your mom could be home because you had to come home for lunch. So um, that really helped the quality of life. Now, this is us one Easter Sunday that's an arrow pointing to me again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, that's John on the steps. Now, with this picture, what we used to do when we played, I have a whole chapter in the book on creative playtime, and we would practice um, uh, athletics, a- athleticism. We would run, jump, um, and swing or whatever from something, so we would jump from these, from the porches, trying not to use the steps. we And so, but you had to jump over the steps to be proficient. You couldn't just jump into the dirt. You had to jump onto the concrete, which meant you had to jump over three steps. And one day we were on the porch jumping, and John was behind me. He had to be all of two years old, maybe a little less. And he jumped off the porch behind me, and he fell and messed his face up. But you can see he's okay. But my mother, bl- my mother blamed me for that. I never knew that down. Now this is the Murphy family. You see Billy Murphy, is the oldest, he's there on the left. And um, Judge Murphy and Mrs. Murphy are seated. And you have next to Billy, you have Madeline. Madeline and you have um, Arthur, who is, is, is deceased. He's to, next to Madeline. Then, next to Judge Murphy, you have Houston Murphy, and you have Laura Murphy on Mrs. Murphy's lap. Now, Madeline was the first Murphy on board with the book. She helped me tremendously, as as did Houston. She got Houston involved. I did talk with Billy Murphy after I'd finished the book. I mean, I didn't, and he wanted to know why I hadn't contacted him when writing the book but I figured every Baltimore knows Billy Murphy, and I figured that I wanted to get to him because he is going to help us set up the um, nonprofit or whatever we choose to do with the proceeds from this project, but um, I, it was interesting because everywhere I went, every time I asked, not every time, but significantly um, many times, people would say, well, is Billy Murphy involved? You would have to know that mentality. It's like, Billy Murphy has to be involved for this to be legitimate. So finally, I had to contact him because I wanted to symbolically close the circle with all the first-generation children. So he said he's, he will help us. Now, that's the Burns family. That's um, Siglinda and the two little girls who were in the front yard. That's their family. And they produced a jazz, a very well-known jazz uh, musician, Howard Burns who is he has a, a quintet and he has an orchestra too I believe and then um, what's the child's name? Who's the sister's name, Sydney? Gwen. 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 Gwen, and yeah and Gwen does um, she does his, history events herself so they're a very prolific family. Now this is the Cherry Hill Mothers Club and that's a club that public housing and private ladies from private homes belong to. So these are mothers. They don't look like project people, do they? You can't, Cherry Hill is not a stereotypical project. This is, I've, although this child came through, this is Warren Jones. He came through in the 70s with his little leisure suit. But uh, he's standing in front of the fireplace that was put into um, 159. That school was state-of-the-art when it was built, and it was built with a lot of features that other schools didn't have at the time. But we had a nice kindergarten fireplace, which was made um, kindergarten less threatening. That's me again. I think I was graduating from first grade. We were doing the bunny hop. That's the back of 159. That's me. <laughs> Come. We were on a field trip to Washington, D.C., and as you can see, we're all dressed like perfect ladies because that's what we had to do then. You couldn't wear pants to school. You had to wear dresses. And um, so we found, we found dresses to wear, and, and it was a very competitive environment. That's my um, sixth grade class, I think the graduating class of 1959 from 159. And I'm in the corner on the back row. Huh? You weren't in it. Anyway, this, now this is a person who's very significant to the book because this lady is Mrs. Hattie Carroll. Mrs. Carroll was killed by Mr. William Zantzinger in 1963. She was a waitress at the old Emerson Hotel, well, a server, and she, she, wasn't, she didn't do that 40 hours a week. She, when, when they had special events, they would call her to serve. This particular night, she was called to serve at a society ball. And Mr. Zantzinger, who was a southern Maryland tobacco farmer, came to the society ball, that, as it was called, wearing his top hat and toting a toy cane. Now, he was already drunk by the time he got to the event, according to public record, and he proceeded to menace the servers at the event by either slapping the women on the behind with the cane or waving the cane to get attention for service. So in Mrs. Carroll's case, he tapped her on the shoulder. Well, he called her some choice names and tapped her on the shoulder, telling her she wasn't moving fast enough. And Mrs. Carroll was heard to say, that man made me so angry, and I'm sure he did invading her space and treating her in that manner and so that night they had to take her by ambulance from um, the Emerson Hotel because she passed out and the next morning she died so the community of black people in Baltimore wanted Mr. Zantzinger charged with murder but the state's attorney at the time said that he could not do that uh, because she had the pre-existing condition and so forth. And they charged him with manslaughter. And they let him. They, they took the trial out of Baltimore, moved it up to Hagerstown, and just gave him six months in jail. But they did give him, released him, so that he could harvest his tobacco crop before he served. So I always say that's probably one of the earliest examples of black lives not man. And Mrs. Carroll's death sort of signals the end this is 1963 so signaling the end of the glory years of Cherry Hill now Bob Dylan wrote his song The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll um, about this event and Tracy if you would I just want to play a few bars of I don't want to play the whole thing but a few bars of his song so that you can understand the emotion he felt as a result of this woman's death
0: and poor Havre,
3: with a king and
1: As you can see, he was deeply moved by Mrs. Carroll's death. So, um, And that, as I say, is the beginning of the end, as far as our generation is concerned. And then I go on to tell you what happens to people who give accounts in the book. So I think that the book, I'm hoping, my goal is to make the book a subject of conversation so that people can start talking about race just from the perspective of their childhood you, I mean it, it's, I don't, we, we don't want to talk about it from a position of blame but just what did you know growing up you know and how did you grow up or how did you handle this situation so I'm hoping that the book will create some conversations on race now Sydney would you come up and share with us what you would like us to know about the project
4: I'm going to read some excerpts of my experiences when I lived in Cherry Hill I was in Cheryl from 5 until I was 23 years old. So that's my main place of living until I became an adult. The Recreation Department sponsored most of the events held at the community center, including the annual mother-daughter and father-and-son banquet, weekly youthful dances, annual flower shows, and sports banquets. There were weekly classes including homemaking topics that residents would attend to enhance their knowledge and skills. The Recreation Department opened the Cherry Hill Swimming Pool, at that time a state-of-the-art facility, in 1955. Cherry Hill had first-class award-winning athletic teams in all sports. Mrs. Parham, and I'm sure some of us remember her, made sure that there were no idle minds and hands to be found and all for a nominal fee. Sidney Walls-Ellis, which is me, moved to Cheerios from Fort Holliburg Temporary War Housing that was later demolished in 1955. We moved to the rental townhouses of 611A Bridgley Road up the street from 159. My father, Johnny Rawls, worked at Fort Meade, and my mother, Hattie, was a homemaker. My sister and I were the only children at that time. I remember attending the mother-daughter banquet every year. Mommy would get our outfits made just alike, and we wore hats and gloves. There was a musical program where some of the mothers and daughters performed together. Everyone looked so beautiful, everyone at the Cherry Hill in those days, was done in support of and a celebration of strong black families. I also remember the last day of school. The priests from St. Veronica's would come down to 159 to see our report cards as we were leaving school. They would give us praise for the work we had done and offer encouragement for the next school year. While I was not a Catholic, it made me feel good that they would be interested in my academic progress. James Dow remembers how Mrs. Parham sought out talent for the community-building talent shows. Mrs. Parham started the the toy band consisting of the young children in the community playing toy instruments. They actually performed before audiences and those that had interest graduated to real instruments. Many notable musicians got their start at the community building, such as Lamont and Ronald Davidson. Ronald played the trumpet and Lamont played tenor sax. They both played in many different bands, such as Natural Gas and The Shindles. The Shindles played for many of the Motown groups that came to Baltimore to play at the Royal Theater. Marvin Saxman Hart still performs with the band around the Baltimore area. Cherryo has so many talented early residents that Whenever there was a need, someone was able to step up and meet the challenge. Mrs. Myrtle Burge, and most of us remember her, a resident who spoke on the dedication ceremonies, volunteered her time to teach adults and young people to sew and cook, which I remember that. She... um, urged us to teach adults and young people to sew and cook. She held adequate classes for teenagers, boys, and girls where they learned how to dress, speak, and interact socially. Mrs. Bird belonged to the Ladies Guild of Cherry Hill, and they sponsored cotillions where the young women and men of Cherry Hill were presented and scholarship money raised.
0: Good evening. I'm John Morris, Linda's brother. I'm the one who jumped off the porch and (laughs) I got to survive both Cherry Hill and Linda any event the importance I think of this exploration of this community of color I think is particularly important now in the aftermath of the mayor's state of the city address in fact Cherry Hill played an important mentioned in that address as the mayor was highlighting her expectations of the development of Cherry Hill as a result of the Port Covington project. There is a cautionary tale presented by the book that I think it's useful to reflect upon because we kind of see Cherry Hill through the lens of what we know now and what we know in the recent past. We don't see it from what those original families sought as a place of promise as a place of rising aspiration that actually sustained those aspirations and so we kind of think well we can do anything and anything we do now will be better than what was was there what was then that's not true for Cherry Hill and here's our difficulty we can't see what could have been and I think that's true for most communities of color. Um, as I was coming over here, it occurred to me that uh, we have an interesting time to think about communities of color just from the movie Black Panther. Just, I mean, I'm, just, I'm not suggesting that Cherry Hill is Wakanda, but it presents an interesting conceptual problem. How do you conceptualize Wakanda without the vibranium? That's the challenge of understanding Cherry Hill. There was no vibranium in those red hills coming up Cherry Hill Road. Yet, (coughs) Cherry Hill produced and sustained success for its residents. Somehow, we don't fully understand the social and economic dynamics of communities of color and this book highlights both our not understanding it and the ways in which we screw it up um, There's the, I did the last chapter which is I guess kind of an epilogue and I'm, I'm going to read that I apologize for reading but it says better what I could say speaking off the cuff The the achievement of early Cherry Hill residents was, however, blunted by the housing decisions of the planners who had conceived Cherry Hill when they chose to expand Cherry Hill not from the middle core of its skilled blue-collar workers, but by expanding the poorest segments of Cherry Hill's population. Even with that expansion, Cherry Hill was resilient in its capacity to sustain growth by moving people from the bottom three income segments – From 1950 to 1970, the ranks of the population in the three lowest income segments declined. Poverty was declining in Cherry Hill in those last three, the lowest three income segments from 1950 to 1970 as Cherry Hill's population expanded. And Cherry Hill's population expanded remarkably. From 1950 to 1960, it nearly doubled. And One of the ways in which it doubled was driven by a sizable increase in the poorest population. Cherry Hill had a remarkably vital home private ownership of homes. The planners of Cherry Hill chose not to build more private homes. They chose to build more public housing. And so, you get this problem. Ultimately, Cherry Hill was built to accommodate human need, not to promote human growth. Perhaps those who planned Cherry Hill had difficulty seeing the promise that drove those original returning World War II veterans. In the space that Cherry Hill's first residents found there to pursue their aspirations, the planners found ample space only for rental housing together with subsidized housing for the poorest ranks of the black community. These planners developed little housing for ownership to meet the prevailing expectations for social progress and rising aspirations among Cherry Hill's own residents. In a community that initially sustained rising expectations among people not expecting to have or to meet expectations, the community, ironically, was not built to satisfy such expectations fulfill a destiny that they determined these aspiring families had to leave Cherry Hill. And many such families did leave, including my own. Seeking out better lives in those transitioning communities outside Cherry Hill, like the evolving all-black communities in the census tracts that contain Coppin Heights and Mondamin, Hanlon Park, Lower Greenspring, Lower Park Heights, and maybe even Ashburton, but not Cherry Hill. In the end, Cherry Hill had room only for need and neediness, not for otherwise unexpected and unfulfilled promise. To this extent, Cherry Hill represents a lost opportunity. For those fortunate enough to have lived there during its early years, it was a lost dream not only of what was, but also of what could have been. And I think that's a good note, in this text, to launch people on the thinking about not just how do you replicate Cherry Hill, but how do you learn from its successes and its failure to build thriving community of colors communities of color in cities like Baltimore. So, as the mayor looks to Under Armor and Goldman Sachs to build these communities, maybe you should listen to the residents of Cherry Hill. And create a different kind of relationship if we're going to make Baltimore a sustainable place for all of its citizens. Do
5: we have any questions? First off, I applaud you for writing the book. It takes a long time and a great amount of effort to do this sort of research. So I applaud you loudly. I think it's
1: thank you. Now start a round of applause. <laughs>
5: John? John. Yeah. The last sentence intrigued me because as I was watching, I thought, what are the themes, the historical themes at work, and I can't help but think at that time, it was post-war, the economy was so strong, we had jobs, as you mm-hmm.
6: said.
5: And so I heard, under armor and all, I'm thinking, that's a return of some potential jobs. And then you said something about, but I think the mayor
0: should listen to the clues. I just was hoping you'd expand on that a bit of please. Sure. What I think the book highlights is that the social dynamics of these, thr- these aspiring communities of color aren't the same for the rest of the society. And while it is wonderful to have jobs, and that's one development that may plug into one narrative of social progress, and it's an aspect of the narrative of social progress in that cheerio of 1950, it's not the only one. That there were various choice points that people chose wrong and those particular policies just replay the same choice points and maybe 40 years from now in the aftermath of Port Covington there can be a group of residents talking about what could have been, that we could have changed the path.
1: So I think you're saying that they need to listen to the residents as well as the people with the money. (laughs)
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a prevailing problem that the people who have the insight, don't have the means, and the people who have the means, don't have a clue. And at some point, you have to figure out how do you sustain that effective discourse and partnership between capital and community.
6: I wanted to ask you about um, the crime
1: in when you were growing up, and it just seems like if it's Mayberry and those places, it was probably just zero crime you were growing up here? We didn't have a lot of crime. I mean, there was crime, We did, but um, it wasn't to the extent it is today. Um, you could leave your doors open. You could sleep. A lot of people used to sleep on the front porches when it got hot because we didn't have air conditioning. Or you could leave your door open and sleep. Um, no, when people, that's another reason I wrote the book. Cherry Hill is not the Cherry Hill of today, and that's what we need to remember. It's a community of people and with some changes, those people can return to what they were. Now I believe too that um, Cherry Hill, the demise of Cherry Hill, partly is caused by the benign neglect. You remember that phrase? I think Mr. Moynihan gave us that. And um, after 19, after the 1968 riots, um, Mayor, the cities did not get the money that they did before. And right, And so we're still sitting in some of the ashes of the 68 riots. So hopefully that is changing. Now one thing I did see in the paper was that the mayor has separated the housing department into two. She has housing development separated out from the um, housing uh, Public Baltimore Public City. Housing. Yeah,. Housing
0: that was, so so promising. the development
1: people hopefully are going to concentrate on all the boarded-up housing and creating housing.
0: You would like to think that, but the prevailing <laughs> bad assumptions continue. So I think they can benefit from the from, lessons here. Mm-hmm. It's not just that organizational change. It's really hard to see, to go to a community that's predominantly Black and poor, and not think it's messed up on the ground, that there's nothing to be sustained there. That's a mistake. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. there is energy support and that just needs to be supported, Mm -hmm. and systems that can enable growth. And we have difficulty to see it, and certainly social cohesiveness, which is maybe the greatest asset that once you begin doing what we typically do. We killed. Them. So in many ways, we killed the golden goose in Cherry Hill.
1: When you went to these other neighborhoods, or the Cherry Hill residents went to in Hopkin, wherever,
6: what were, did they like those neighborhoods, or did they wish they were back in Cherry Hill, or were
0: those nice neighborhoods? Or?
1: They were nice neighborhoods. What? They. The housing, I understand what she's asking. She said she
0: understood.
1: How? The housing opened up. What happened was housing was very segregated in Baltimore City until 1968 with the Federal Housing Act, was it? And once those communities opened up, they were places to aspire to, but white flight was happening from those neighborhoods, and John's analysis will show you how white people left the neighborhoods of Baltimore. Once that Federal yeah, Housing that. Act opened up,:,
0: no, one of the things that did happen from our family, we continued to rely upon the systems that were in place in Sherry Hill for the health care, right. Um, I was graduating from high school, going to college and still going to see Dr. Look when I got <laughs> sick.
1: And we <laughs> lived in Edmondson Village, and we go all the way back down there, would yes. You, would, would you, and he was a great doctor. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Luck could look at you and diagnose what was wrong. He didn't need to send you for tests. You And very few of us had to go to the hospital. We
3: yeah. didn't had a shot of chromosomes. No matter what the he did a shot
6: of And <laughs> no AIDS, no disease, nothing. Disease no three? The doctors actually came to the hospital.
1: Yes. yes.
6: You, you had many babies that were born house. in
1: Cherry Hill at home. No. And they were available
4: twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. We always knew where Doctor Lux was. All of the Dr. Leeson and Doctor Lux was around the corner from each other. Yeah. And the dentist was
6: up the street. All three of the No matter when
1: there. you called them, they came. When
6: funded at the doctors, was it like a socialism? No.
1: We paid for it. It wasn't free. We paid for it. But if we couldn't pay, they served us anyway. Dr. Luck charged $3 a visit from 1953 wow. to the late... Seth. It's it's early right, right, right. He right. did do the Well Baby Clinic. He so, did, right. yeah.
4: He some of our friends,
1: which I didn't
4: know,
6: Dr. Luck delivered them. But there was no
1: Medicaid, no. Black families sustained themselves in those days.
6: Well, I don't know if you said it, when Cherry Hill was coming up, I, 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 did, I was not there, but i was frequent there. with like, It was like people that owned homes that was doing well was also struggling people that was very poor. It was both.
1: Right, right. right. We had homeowners, and people helped each other. Oh, yeah. If your child was sick and you didn't have the money to go to Dr. Luck, he would treat that child anyway. Car, he didn't care. Mm-mm. No.
6: I remember the, 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 the bus that served the food that sold yeah. Daddy, Daddy oh. Logan.
1: <laughs> yes, that's in the book. We had a grocery bus to service the community before the yep, shopping right. center went up, and he continued to service us um, through, throughout many years. He just died a few years ago, two years ago. We went to his funeral. <laughs> I'd okay. <laughs> like
2: to say, for a while I taught at Cherry Hill, and it was such a joy, I went in as a substitute and everything I needed, the parents provided for me. So the kids didn't give me any trouble. You know, sometimes they mistreat substitutes, they see its weakness, didn't have that problem. So I will always remember Cherry Hill. The way they treated me. And after I left Cherry Hill, I went to Curtis Bay. Did you know Curtis Bay. Well that was nearby, past Cherry Hill. It was a little different I think, because I was the first black teacher to
1: work together. Cherry Hill it was a joy. He mm-hmm. was a pleasure. I think my brother, both. You're both friends. your brothers. I can Dave. Uh, mm-hmm. This is my cousin, full disclosure. Yeah. <laughs>
2: but it was, it was wonderful.
1: Because we had home training. Mm-hmm. And that's something children don't have. Black and white. They do not have home training these days. I'm sorry. Parents don't tell. Yeah, the, parents. the children teach the parents. The well, parents they're don't they're teach parents. the children
3: you have pictures in the book?
1: Just seven in the front of, of housing, but not people.
0: So I think this, is I an, this is a new edition that you saw. Let me,
1: let, let me just flip through that while uh, I'm going continue asking questions. just uh, told
3: me about the uh, book signing just this afternoon. I was so excited because I lived in Cherry Hills uh, in the early 60s. I just got married. See, there some of the pictures. And, uh, I had my babies in Cherry Hill. Brand new house, 2319 Seaman Avenue. They were brand new. But there was no transportation. I couldn't even have one bus run one day. It was number 51 to take me to my mother lived on Prince in West Baltimore. I thought my husband had mistreated me, moved me way out there. But I had a brand new house, the neighbors was Clean, very, very, very nice. And I moved, I don't reason I left because we didn't have a car, I didn't have no idea of driving, you know, I was 17, 18 years old. I thought that was the worst thing. Mm-hmm. I stayed out there long enough because my kids went to school there. my kids went to oh. one sixty something, wasn't it? One sixty three or sixty four There's the did when you first come up. One sixty. Oh, yeah, that was one sixty. So then um got back in Baltimore City, and they built some new houses in Jerry Hill, down 3 Avenue. I was going to college, which was in 1971. I lived there, again, for another three years. Everybody was, but only thing, they, they put these brand new townhouses by the dump, where they put the trash at, and it stinks so bad on the holidays and the holidays you know, and I'm going to college, I think I deserve better than this didn't by the trend dog. So now I go down there, in the 90s, they got a park and people walking through the park with
1: the dog. And they changed the name to Reed Bird Park. They changed the name to Reed Bird Park in that section. I been you there notice there it doesn't say Cherry it Hill anymore. Or whatever, but it doesn't say Cherry Hill anymore. What is it's
3: not Cherry Hill uh, anymore.
1: They had two pools down there, but the point is, they're trying to rebrand it from Cherry Hill. When I
3: was down there in the '70s, my children were almost teenage or teenage. It was two swimming pools. Both of them swam when they went to high school. Got trophies all over the place from them learning how to swim in Cherry Hill. Yeah. So now, I'm sir. Just you had another.
1: About this, uh, you had another question. I'm sorry.
5: I did. I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about the community center. Could that be replicated today, or is the time, the time shifted so much? You said there were so many activities.
1: I don't know, because you have so many children <laughs> on Who these machines the market now. Market
4: was, right? <laughs> that was in the shopping center. shopping center. But one thing, the community building had uh, several things, like the public library was there, because I used to work there when I was going to college. And then also, they had the rent office, and
3: then they had a daycare. Mm-hmm. So they used it.
1: And it's still there. In fact, I It's still there. It's uh-huh. still there. And do. it was another had of kids.
3: My sister worked for um, Street It's called Street Club. Yeah, they met a- at the recreation center. They did everything for the kids. They even had, had uh, what did you do when they were society? And they, yeah, that's what I read. Uh, yeah. 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 Daughter. That's why i because I The catillion,
1: yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One,
5: one, one thing you spoke of, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago called "Holding Alone, and it was talking about the shift about from the 50s to the time you we were talking about in the 60s, how there was one one that the one person could provide the income and you have to stay at home. Mom, as you described right. And you also have a a lot more free time so you can get involved with with, uh, the mother's clubs and the guilds and the the groups. In fact, I work with Baltimore County, and all of the the Wrecks and Parks groups are using that old formula of having the parents run the programs, and it doesn't quite work like it once did. And um, I, I guess I'm just intrigued when you talk about I guess what I was getting at was the shift that we see across the whole country Mm -hmm. is also the shift that you described in Cherry Hill, that we used to have so much more structure and Mm -hmm. so many, post-war was so, we had such a strong economy, one income could provide a house. Those days are gone. Mm -hmm. And so you'd have time for things like rotary clubs and lodges and stuff like that.
0: you describe something,
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, they had clubs, and yes. And you
0: just don't see that very large across the country. Well, I think demographically, this is one of the odd things about Cherry Hill. The percentage, the profile, the family profile in terms of how many earners you had in a household, if you compare Cherry Hill with a community like Oland, they were comparable in that regard. You can ask questions. How was Cherry Hill able to do this compared to a community that was as uh, well healed as Homeland or Roland Park? Uh, That becomes, I think, a feature of your planning that you need to sustain, which is basically be able to find employment for men so that women have the time that they can do that.
4: If they choose Um, to. One thing I wanted to say, all the churches were built on the same street. They planned that community to the T. The community building, I mean the shopping center wasn't far. You had stores for girls and boys, you had the movies, you had the clinics, you had the whole shopping center we had stores, for whatever you need. The beauty salon, the MP, the rent office. So with that closeness,
5: everybody helped each other.
6: Hills like you got one was kind of like the people that worked that was that had husbands and wives. Oh. And then you had the ones that didn't have no husbands, that that had households, just with women with kids, and that was shifting at the same time. Like, you know, the men was out of the household totally. Because that's how my mother and a lot of other ladies, they had the babies but it was no men around.
1: but they were mixed in with other families though they weren't all pushed together
6: so it was together but it was like it was like two little neighborhoods there you know what I mean? no not at at the
1: time we grew up they were mixed in with our blocks I lived that block I showed you where we lived we had probably three families that did not have fathers, fathers and then we had four or five who did so you, they didn't push everybody all together. That's my point. You had children got to see something other than what the model was in their household.
6: Yeah, but it shifted where a lot of. But it did later
1: businesses. on. But that's the point. It
6: totally shifted,
1: mm-hmm. and then the drugs came but this only goes up to sixty-five or so before right. the change, before the right. Vietnam War and right. so forth, the idyllic year. Yes. We
2: might have time for some book signing) <clears throat>